Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of gathering together as family, Father, in a church that you've ordained from eternity past. Father, thank you for always keeping spiritual gifts functioning and moving forward and healthy, uh, mostly spiritually, of course, but also physically and emotionally, Father, so that we can continue to spread the good news amongst a perverse generation, Father, especially up here in the Northeast, where people seem to be accelerating away from your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we know it's not futile. We know there are some that are open and humble and looking and searching and we're just so very grateful to have the opportunity, Father, to seek them out and to evangelize them. We pray for those in the congregation that are sick. Uh, there's just too many to list here, Father, but we pray for them. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit always, that we earnestly desire to have them back into the fold so that we can fellowship with them. Your will be done, of course. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father. Most of all, we are most grateful and thankful for our Lord's work to take care of that debt, to stand in our place and take judgment, Father, upon Him on a cross. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, um, interesting things going on from the pulpit, interesting conversations, I think, that are happening behind the scenes. I know I've had a few uh, with family and friends, uh, just a lot of things coming out of this series, just like I expected. I knew when we embarked on it that there would be a lot of um, soul-searching, a lot of self-examination, and probably a lot of eye-opening people, um, especially after the holidays. Uh, we tend to get sort of myopic uh, and self-absorbed and sometimes even miserable. And I hope you read that blog, Mommy, I Threw Up. <laughs> uh, that's what that was really about, perspective. Um, it's just so easy to get entangled and ensnared in the details of life. And all the Spirit's saying is, step back for a moment. What are you fretting over in the first place? Sin is having its way with you. And you're worried about, I don't know, apple pie, pumpkin pie, ham, ham steak, spam. I don't, I, I was, what's more base than spam? Nothing. <laughs> Anyways, one of the subtleties that's been coming out of this series is the fact that sin, I need you to concentrate right out of the gate here, sin ought not be just thought of in the negative sense. In other words, uh, in the absence of goodness, in the absence of holiness. Um, so again, one of these subtleties that's been coming out is the fact that sin ought not be just thought of in the negative sense, as in, you know, something like, well, since sin isn't light, it is the absence of light, a.k.a. darkness. While this is true, there's also a positive aspect of sin. Uh, and I'm not talking about good here, not positive in the sense of uh, good and bad. Positive meaning it has a direction of its own. It doesn't just sit there. In other words, it's not just the absence of something where it just sits there. 
it's actually got a positive vector to it. It's got its own direction, and it's got its own magnitude, its own velocity, if you would. And I speak like a uh, physics person, obviously. But So uh, while that's true, that uh, sin is the absence of light, there's also the positive aspects of sin in the sense that it is active, not just passive. In other words, not only is sin negative against holiness, it is positive for depravity. Not only is sin negative against holiness, it's positive towards depravity. So if this is holiness and this is depravity on the scale, if you would, or on a, a line, not only is it not going in that direction, it's positively going in that direction. It's not only going away from holiness, it's going actively towards depravity. So in other words, it doesn't just fall away from holiness and that's depravity. It actually has a momentum towards ungodly things. It pursues ungodliness. In other words, it's animated, energized towards depravity. So there's a, a, a negative aspect, but also a positive aspect. And I don't think we think about sin that way enough. And I think that's one of the things that is coming out with the deceitfulness of sin. Sin would like you to think that it's just not holy by itself. In other words, take away what it's actually doing behind the scenes. Sin, if we were to personify it once again, sin is not ambivalent. You know what an ambivalent person is. They're like, you know, meh. You know, meh. M-E-H. Meh. That's an ambivalent person. You ask them a question, they're like, meh. Do you believe in God? Meh. They just sort of like just sitting there like a blob. You know, that's not sin. Sin never does that. Sin is not ambivalent. It's not just a bump on a log that crosses its arms and refuses to play nice with God. It spends its time <clears throat> on the outskirts, even throwing stones at God, attacking Him, actively opposing Him, seeking depravity itself for the sake of depravity. So concentrate. What this means is that sin may not necessarily show itself outwardly by keeping a believer from ever doing good. Instead, it may simply dig deeper into that person's soul. And because the outward manifestations of the Spirit go relatively undeterred for a time, a person thinks, you know, oh, sin must not be so active in me. You know, I'm doing all these good things, in other words. Right? It's not deterring me from fruit of the Spirit, necessarily. So sin must not be all that active in me. Uh-uh-uh. The reality is that behind the scenes, sin is digging its heels in because it never rests. It seeks to make positive headway for its own causes. That's why we have to go deep within ourselves to examine what's really going on by shining the light in the deep recesses of our own souls. Up here on the board, the deceitfulness of sin. One of the greatest errors any man or woman can ever make is to presume that sin only exists 
in their acknowledgement of it, or even their ability to identify it. In other words, we would only be looking at the negative aspects of sin. In other words, if, if I'm still moving forward with you know, the fruit of the Spirit and, and you know, it seems to be at an all-time low in my life, sin must be less active. Uh-uh. That's a huge mistake. One of the greatest errors any man or woman can ever make is to presume that sin only exists in their acknowledgement of it or even their recognition of it or the covert aspects of it, things that you undoubtedly have to acknowledge. Analogy, does undetected, undiagnosed cancer mean that the insidiousness of the disease isn't real in someone who has it? Of course not. I could have cancer right now and not know it. There's nothing that I can see that's keeping me back, uh, but it's there, and it could be growing. I don't know. Does that mean it's not there? No, not at all. Matter of fact, it has uh, an, an intent against keeping me healthy, and it's going about its business in a positive direction for its own purposes. It just hasn't reared its ugly head yet, and that's how sin likes to go about its business in our own lives. It may go undetected. It deceives us into thinking, well, since I'm doing all these nice things out front, I've got my list after all. Sin, I must be un, you know, unaffected by sin. It's, that's exceptionally dangerous thinking. So, people, even believers, make the mistake of only addressing sin when fruit of it bears its ugly head overtly. People, even believers, make that mistake of only addressing sin, only thinking about sin, only acknowledging sin's presence in their life when there's an overt sin to point to. You say, okay, now I see it. Oh, I had that, you know, whatever. I did that thing or I said that thing. Ugh. And that's on my list of things not to do, so, you know. To treat sin this way intellectually is to allow it to function unopposed in its natural state. The point the Spirit's making with this series is that we need to understand the very nature of sin. Not just what it produces in us, overtly, but the very nature of sin. Not this, it's the absence of light, but also that it has a direction and momentum towards depravity. So this is the, sport, the, the point the Spirit's making. We need to understand the nature of sin, especially its primitive desire to remain undetected and unidentified. We must understand sin wholly, including its primary inward effect, namely the total depravity of man. For if we don't, as Holy Scripture points out, and as the Holy Spirit has been emphasizing from this pulpit, we are inherently exposed to the power of it. And furthermore, we know that if we remain in darkness about any part of sin's nature, to that same degree, it has power in our lives. In other words, if you ignore what's coming from this pulpit right now, you're, to that degree, giving power to this thing in you. Sin, you're leaving it unopposed. You're not shining any light on it. You're not discovering how it's manifest in your own 
uh, self. The reason why learning Holy Scripture is so very important is because we are taking in the light, the light of the Word of God. Stated differently, we are exposing the deeds of darkness. You know, the ones behind the scene, behind the curtain. Here's the curtain, and all the deceitful things happen behind it. That's what deceit depends on, right? It depends on darkness. It depends on being behind the veil. So that's what we're doing. We're going behind the curtain. That's why this particular series is um, hated by the kingdom of darkness. Because the kingdom of darkness wholly depends on deceit. And darkness itself. That's why we call it the kingdom of darkness. (laughs) And when the light comes in, the darkness is exposed for what it is. So it doesn't want that really doesn't want that. It decimates it. So we are exposing the deeds of darkness, including its primitive desire to remain undetected, unidentified, where it sits deep in our fleshes. It's always been there. It's never rested. And that's why I gave you uh, B.W. Newton on the topic of sin up here on the board. Antecedent to all trespasses and acts of sin. That means before even all uh, trespasses and acts of sin before any apprehension of good or evil has dawned upon our hearts, before you even know it, before any notion respecting God has been formed in our souls, before we have uttered a word or conceived a thought, sin, essential sin, is found to dwell within us. Bound up with our being, it enters into every sensation lives in every thought, sways every faculty. In the senses by means of which we communicate with the external world had never acted if our eye had never seen and our ear had never heard, if our throat had never proved itself to be an open sepulcher, breathing forth corruption, if our tongue had never shown itself to be set on fire of hell, Still, sin would have been the secret mistress of that world of thought and feeling which is found within us. And every hidden impulse, there would have been enmity against God. Perfect. I know that's lofty language, but it's very well stated. Very well stated. Since still sin would have been the secret mistress of that world of thought and feeling which is found within us. In other words, the things that are deep in us, the things we have to go looking for, things that, you know, um, animate our motivation even, things that truly influence us. And we're going to get to this a little bit later. Things that we have real affection for. And every hidden impulse there would have been enmity against God. So we must understand the depravity that remains in us as a result of being diseased by sin. We mustn't make the grave mistake of thinking about sin only when we are tempted and fall, you know, making lists and such. We cannot think of sin just that way. I know, trust me, I know that's the easier way out. Absolutely, it's easy. That's called religion. That's how religion goes about it. 
Let's just make a list. Let's call some of them this way and some of them that way. And as long as we don't do stuff on this list, we're good. We don't have to do any introspection. We don't have to actually examine our affections. We don't have to consider who and what we love. We don't have to do any of that. There's no real soul searching involved, is there, in that case? No, because all you're looking at is the outward sins. And as long as you don't do these things right here, you can leave yourself alone. But that's essentially saying, I'm never going to look behind the curtain. Suffice to say that the sovereignty of sin still exists in this world. Though our new nature is no longer a slave to it, however, our flesh is. Go to Romans 7.24. Romans 7.24. So this is what Newton was saying. Before we even had any thought about anything, sin was there in us. And there's no getting around it. And we're never rid of it in this life of the power of it. We can be rid of the penalty of it as a believer, but the power and the presence of it still remain. Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That was Paul's lament. Who's going to set me free of this? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I don't even want to... I don't even like the idea, you know, like, you could be sitting there having a, a, a gay old time, right? And you feel sin's influence, like, right there. Do you ever feel that way? Like, it's kind of like bursting a little bit at the seams uh, from behind that curtain, trying to influence you, trying to get you to, you know, go in a different direction, try to sort of steal your affections. You know, you spend some real time fellowshipping with the Lord, Maybe in prayer, maybe you're reading your Bible, you're having a wonderful time. You say, I love you, Lord. I'm so grateful for you, Lord. Um, I'm just in love with you. And then all of a sudden, your affections start like, eh. Something's trying to steal, almost like a magnet, you know, that has some uh, magnitude of attraction in your life. It's like pulling you. Uh, that's That's very irritating to a person who really wants to do good and wants to be pleasing to the Lord. That's very irritating to know that even exists in them. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans 7, 24. I'm so wretched. Who's going to free me from this? From this intrinsic, awful, active thing. Sin. I'm so depraved. When I think of it that way. So our new natures aren't vulnerable to sin, but our old self, as Paul described it, is. In other words, Paul recognized that there is an evil nature we believers still need to cope with. And the imagery is that we, our new nature, because that's who we're supposed to identify with, our new nature. We, our new nature, is sort of held uh, held hostage by this old self, this body of death. That's the imagery which transcends even just the human body, by the way, but I don't want to get into the theology. A lot of people equate the old self with the body alone, but it's bigger than that. Without getting into the deeper theology of the flesh or the old self, suffice to say that the old self, being under the power of sin, still has influence in our lives. I was thinking about an analogy, and excuse me, I'm obviously feeling a little nerdy this morning. 
a lot on physics. Um, one of the experiments in physics, uh, in a physics type class, is to test the strength of a magnet. You ever notice that? Like somehow some magnets are a lot stronger than others. You know, how do you test the relative strength of a magnet? You might say, well, you know, well, I want the strongest magnet. Well, how would you ever know? How do you test that? And that's really what this little experiment is about. So how do you test the strength of a magnet? You might do so knowing the static, well, I don't want to be too nerdy, but the static coefficient of friction of a magnet on a certain surface. In other words, if I put that magnet, one magnet here, on a piece of wood, it has a little stickiness, right? You can blow on it and it won't move, but if you hit it, it'll move, okay? So there's a certain amount of friction before it will actually move. Knowing the mass or the weight of the magnet, a student is able to calculate the amount of opposing force it has to movement. So it's going to stay there until a certain force is big enough to move it. That's all static friction is anyways. So when we introduce another magnet into the experiment, let's say, so we got our magnet right here, we have another one over here, and say that one's oriented to repel the, the one that's stationary. We can bring it slowly closer and closer to the original magnet. And once the stationary magnet moves, we measure the distance, and then we do our calculations from there. Because now we know the force. You see, sin is like invisible magnetic forces in that it exerts force on otherwise stationary objects. And that force is ever-present and very real. A person in Christ is like a stationary object, grounded and rooted in the rock. And the rock never moves. So we sort of cling to Christ, and then some influence, like a magnet, some influence, you know, there's a certain amount of stickiness you have. You're not moving, you're not moving, then you move. person in Christ is like that stationary object grounded and rooted in the rock. However, what the Bible teaches us is that we can be moved if the, quote, magnetic force of sin proves forceful enough to do it. The point is that isn't sin, in the context of that little experiment, isn't sin better described as an influencer rather than the movement, just the movement? Isn't sin better described, more completely described, as an influencer, not just the movement? See, religion says, oh, you moved! You sinned! But sin is much bigger than that. What the heck made you move in the first place? Sin. Your depravity, its influence over you, all of that is part of what we're investigating here. So isn't sin better described as an influencer than just a movement? Isn't it wiser to, quote, see sin as something much more fundamentally dangerous than just the overt fruit that it produces? Yep, <clears throat> that's the whole point. It's a lot easier just to point at overt sin. But the Bible doesn't just talk about sin in that way. 
That is actually a sin, but there's another bigger issue, a fundamental issue called sin itself. And it's that thing that acts like a magnetic force on us, that influences us. Maybe you haven't moved yet, but it's right there. You know that influence? It wants to push you away from Christ, wants to separate your relation, wants to fracture that relationship with Christ. I look around even, one of the ways, one of the first ways he does that is keep people out of a church like this. Or if they're in a church like this, make them run away. can't tell you. I think, I, honestly, I really think it's like four or five times the capacity of this church has been through the church walls, regardless of the four places we've been so far. I would be willing to bet it's at least four times the number of the members right now that have been through the, been through the doors and then left. Why? Because that's what sin wants to do. Sin does not want you grabbing hold of the truth. Because the truth is light. And the light decimates darkness. And sin is darkness. So the, one of the ways it does it is keep people away from churches like this one that actually treat, uh, uh, just, just teach the straight up truth. It's one of the ways that people can premeditate preserving their sinful living. They don't want to come to a church like this because the lights turn full on and they're like, whoa, whoa, no, <laughs> no, no. I got to go down the street. I gotta, this is way too much. I only want to hear about when I don't do overt things. Because here, I just want, just, I want somebody to give me a list that I can just tend to and then I can just go back to my regular life, my sinful life. I don't want to look behind the curtains. I'm not that humble. So, isn't it wiser to see sin as something much more fundamentally dangerous than just the overt fruit that it produces? Of course. <clears throat> so concentrate. If we examine the nature of sin against our new natures for a moment, one easy way to understand the direction of their influence in, say, analogous magnetic terms, that's why I gave you the analogy, is to understand their orientation, or better yet, the direction of their affections. The direction of their affections. We already talked about this. The new nature, obviously, its affections is for Christ. The old nature, or sin, the sin nature, however you like to think of it that way, isn't just negative, but also has a positive direction towards depravity. So its affections, it's the direction of its affections are towards depravity. So it's almost like a magnet, right? You positive or negative. So one easy way to understand the direction of the influence is to understand their orientation, or better yet, the direction of their affections. The new creature is 100% attracted to Christ. The old self is 100% attracted, or excuse me, repelled from Christ or attracted towards depravity. Stated differently, we might say that the new creature loves Christ and therefore its direction is always towards Him to, quote, do what is pleasing in his sight. That's 2 Corinthians 5.9. That's the new creature. 
the direction is the same, if you would, or is motivated by the affection it has for Christ. However, the old self hates Christ, loves depravity, and therefore its direction is always away from him to do what is natural to it, as the, quote, sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2, and the children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, do naturally. That's why, like, an unbeliever, literally, no matter how good they look on the outside, is doing nothing for Christ. You know why? Because the old self, which is what all they have, doesn't like Christ, doesn't have a real affection for Christ. Christ is a tool to a person like that. Which is why you get a lot of unbelievers in churches. Because Jesus Christ to them is just some other lever that they can use to better their own life. Hey, I get a little pat on the back. I get a little, you know, I went to church today. I get a little, hey, it was good to see you, Sonny, from my grandmother. Right? And she gives me more cake when I go there. Or lollipops, you know what I'm getting at, right? It's all about you. That's all the self is. Self doesn't love Christ, it loves self. It's depraved, and that's all it can be. That's what, that's what the sons of disobedience, that's what the children of wrath do naturally. Up here on the board, in the Amplified Classic, Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which at one time you walked habitually, you were following the course and fashion of this world, were under the sway of the tendency of this present age, following the prince of the power of the air. You were obedient to and under the control of the demon spirit that still constantly works in the sons of disobedience, the careless, the rebellious, and the unbelieving who go against the purposes of God. Verse 3, Amplified Classic. Among these, we as well as you once lived and conducted ourselves in the passions of our flesh, our behavior governed by our corrupt and sensual nature, obeying the impulses of the flesh and the thoughts of the mind, our cravings dictated by our senses and our dark imaginings. We were then by nature children of God's wrath, and heirs of his indignation like the rest of mankind. Again, the old self hates Christ, and therefore its direction is always away from him, and furthermore, towards depravity, in the positive sense. So, if we have that kind of influence in us, like something that is attracted to, and sets its direction towards depravity. Who will free me from this body of death? So we know we have that. We know we have to deal with the old self. And the old self, all it knows and all it cares about is anything but Christ. So if we have that kind of influence in us, we need to understand how it operates, how it sets up field ops, etc., etc., I mean, we are at war after all. Paul describes that. War between the members of your body and what you want to do, the new self and the members of your own body even. Remember, your flesh is one of your three key enemies in this life. 
So if we have that kind of influence on us, we need to understand how it operates, sets up field ops, etc., especially behind the scenes. This is where false religion thrives in keeping its proponents, you know, its congregants, in the dark about sin itself. It's how religion, false religion thrives. It never wants to, <laughs> doesn't want the congregants knowing about sin. That would defeat the whole purpose. It just wants to, you know, feed their little righteousness. Do this, this, and this. And when you show up, you know, sweep the floors. Make sure everybody knows that you're sweeping the floors. You ever notice that? I notice that a lot. That's why I don't promote people. People come in and they want to do good immediately. And it's like, you see, I'm sweeping the floors. I'm a, such a good little doobie. No, you're not. You're doing that for yourself. It's the same game you've been playing for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. You think that person wants to understand what sin actually is? You think that person wants to understand that they're functioning in sin? In that moment, as they sweep the church floor, that they're functioning in sin? Do you think that person wants to hear that? No. Absolutely not. But you are this morning. Hey, good for you. Everybody's like, I'm never sweeping the floor in here again. So this is where false religion thrives, in front of the curtain. A whole lot of counterfeiting, a whole lot of overt things, right? Whitewashed tombs, right? But this series is saying, drop the curtain. Let's see what sin really is. And let's see if any of us even, at least in part, are being deceived by it. That's what this is all about. False religion never has this conversation with its congregants. Ever. Never. Some of them even say, don't read your own Bible. That's, un that's unfathomable to me. I mean, if you're going to keep anyone in the dark, that's the way to do it, right? If this is the only truth, and you can get them to say, all right, I won't read my Bible. I mean, come on. You can do anything you want up front, you know. You can even lie to them about what's really going on behind the scenes, which is what Satan does because he's the father of lies. So have all his agents masquerading his light. So false religion thrives in this space, if you would, in keeping its proponents, its congregants, in the dark about sin itself. It's genius. Truly it is. It's genius. And it all begins with one basic realization. Go to Proverbs 26.22. Proverbs 26, 22. The Bible is so chock full of this context, of this, this concept, this, this uh, deceitfulness of sin. It's unbelievable. Sometimes I sit there and I go, I go, where do I start? Like, where do I start this thing? Proverbs 26, 22. It's like, Warning after warning after warning. Proverbs 26, 22. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. Just dwell on that for a moment. The words of a whisperer. What does Satan do in your ear? What's a fiery dart do? It's a whisper. Psst. Influence. Right? Influence. It's whispering. 
It doesn't scream it because if it screams it, maybe someone like us would say, hey, watch out what's going on there. You see what they're trying to get you to do, right? So it whispers in your ear so nobody else can hear. This is for you and you alone. I don't want to broadcast this because I got to stay behind the veil. You see? I got to stay in darkness. I got to sort of like lurk around. I got to whisper things. You see the imagery? That's what's going on. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. Yep. Exactly what they want to do. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. Ooh. He who hates disguises with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. You see that? You see the imagery there? Sin is trying to get you alone. Sin isn't broadcasting itself, it's whispering in your ear. Sin can use the sin nature of another person even. This is where it gets extremely dangerous. Careful who you listen to. Careful who you allow to whisper in your ear. He who hates disguises it with his lips. I didn't say that. That's the Bible. He who hates disguises it with his lips. But he lays up deceit in his heart. That's the nature of sin. And it's manifest in a sinner. Solomon, the most likely author here, wrote this as a supreme wisdom, or as supreme wisdom on the topic of sin. A person controlled, or filled, as we might say, with sin does exactly what verse 24 says. Why? Because sin is a master at disguising itself, and it uses deceit which always involves some form of counterfeiting or masquerading to function. Sin is a master at disguising itself, and it uses deceit, which always involves some form of counterfeiting or masquerading to function. Again, verse 24, He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him. In other words, don't be flattered. What do you think sin's going to do? He's such a swell guy. I saw how you did all those things on the list. He's such a good guy. Don't look behind here, though. You keep focusing out there on the whitewashed pot. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. That means his heart is filled, seven in numerology, being the fullness, completeness. There are seven abominations in his heart, though his hatred covers itself with guile. His wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Mm. This is the conclusion of this chapter because it puts a wrapper on Solomon's thoughts on this topic up here on the board to summarize it. Deceitfulness is the name of the game that sin plays. That's it. 
If you want to understand the nature of sin, understand that it's deceitful. The one who embodies it, Satan himself, is the father of lies. And there is no truth in him. But yet he masquerades himself as an angel of light. You have to reconcile those two things. So there's no truth in him, and yet he's able to masquerade as an angel of light? And people are deceived? Yeah, that's how genius he is. And that's how effective sin is. And that's how weak we are in our fleshes. Deceitfulness is the name of the game that sin plays. We just read Proverbs 26, 22 to 28. Go to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. Deceitfulness. You see? See, this is a turnaround for most people. Most people want to think of sin as just something they can identify. That it's not influential. It's only the overt fruit that I can identify. Well, sin has got you then. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. We just saw that in Proverbs 26 as well whose ends will be according to their deeds. In other words, this is not going to last. Christ is already victor over death itself, over sin. It's not going to last, but as for now, we're stuck with the power and the presence of sin. And power implies influence. And we have to understand it, which means it's not just a list of things. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. This is about... Our innermost affections. Listen, that's what this is about. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. This is about our innermost affections. Sin does not want you to realize that. Sin wants you to go on thinking that it's about a list of things and overt uh, things and list of sins and what have you. Does not want you to realize what it truly is. This is about affection and direction. This is about where is your heart every moment of every day. You going to make it, Tom? Where is your heart every moment of every day? That's what this is about. Is that loud enough to get over the commotion? Where is your heart every single day? Where is it in every moment of every single day? That's what this is about. Satan does not want you to realize that. He wants you to be the whitewashed tomb. He doesn't want you to realize this is about your heart and where your affections are. And when you examine yourself, where am I, where's my love? And most of you will find out that a lot of time is spent loving yourself and loving your life and loving people even close to you, your kids, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your video game, your internet porn, all your other ridiculousness. That's what you really love. But you see, somewhere down the street at some religious institution with a cross on the top, nobody's saying this. Nobody's teaching this kind of stuff. Why? Because they're all deceived. You can call yourself a Christian, we're a Christian earring, we're an emblem, we're a shirt that says John 3.16 on the back, and be a fool. That's what the deceitfulness of sin is all about. 
Where is your heart? Where are your affections? What are you allowing to influence you? What is your direction? That's what this is all about. That's a very different conversation, isn't it? Very different conversation than even studying out, let's say, the Ten Commandments. A very different conversation. Why don't you want to do the Ten Commandments? Uh, Because I want to look good. Wrong! Wrong! That's about pleasing the one you love. That's what that's about. So if you go through the motions, do all the Ten Commandments, well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, I do this, and it's because you just want to look good on the outside, wrong! You are deceived. Your affections haven't changed. And as I've been saying for three years now, you might have a bigger problem. That's my biggest fear for a lot of people in this world that call themselves Christians. They have a much bigger damn problem. They're not even saved. And the proof of it is they have no affection for Christ. They only have affection for themselves. They just want to keep lists, look the part, go on their way, have affection for everything but Christ. Their direction, their momentum, everything is pointed towards the total depravity of man. And they're all deceived. How much do you think that's being taught this, this very day? If this is the grand scale of Christendom, I'd be willing to bet it's this much. Thank God for a few faithful ones of us. True pastors. Throw all the women out. Throw all the idiots out. And you're left with us. But you know, we're not as entertaining, are we? We don't even have any music here today. You want me to sing for you? What? No. Who just said, yeah, Jim, stop. That means you just you get recruited, man. Right? Do you know what I'm getting at? This is about truth that sets you free. This is about looking behind the curtain, not playing these little Sunday school games. That's what we're talking about. That is a very different conversation. Amen? It's a very different conversation. And Satan hates me right now. And the kingdom of darkness is probably going to blow my four tires out on my Jeep on the drive home. I'll go, there'll be like knives in the wheels. I wish it was that easy. I wish it was only knives in the tires. That'd be easy to deal with, just change the tires. The deceitfulness, or deceitfulness, is the name of the game that sin plays. All right, let's get back to our previous point up here on the board. Understanding sin... Isn't sin better described as an influencer than just a movement? In other words, if we look at the magnet analogy, isn't sin, even before that, even before you move, isn't sin influencing? Isn't there a real force on that immovable object, that stationary, I shouldn't say immovable, on that stationary object? Isn't there a real force there? Yeah, that's called sin. Just because you haven't moved yet, just because you don't haven't you know tallied up another list item, another check mark next to a list item, just because that hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean sin isn't there, influencing you. You know what I'm saying? So isn't it better described as an influencer than just a movement? 
One easy way to understand this is to understand the direction of sin's affections. I want you to remember those two words, if nothing else, this morning. Direction and affection. Direction and affection. Those two words. The new self has affection for Christ, and therefore its direction is always towards Him. The flesh has an affection for depravity, antichrist, and therefore its direction is always towards depravity, which implies away from Christ. So, one easy way to understand this is to understand the direction of sin's affections. While the new creature is 100% attracted to Christ, the old self is 100% repelled from Christ. And even more, I should have added that, and even more has an active role towards depravity. The old self's sinful affections, and therefore its direction, is always away from God. Now, speaking of affections, and I alluded to this earlier, Speaking of affections, because that's what this is about. This is about heart issues. Don't give me a list. Don't do that to yourself. Don't make a list. That's called religion. Affections. Perfect example. A wife cleans the house, does the, whatever she does during the day, blah, 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 but she can't stand her husband. Is that a good marriage? No. But she does all the right things. She has no affection whatsoever for her husband or her family. She wants to be somewhere else, let's say. Is that a good marriage? No. Is it a working marriage? I suppose. You get the point. Is that a relationship? Is that a good relationship? Or is that just some stale, whitewashed relationship? Without any meaning. Without any affection whatsoever. You know the answer. That's just called going through the motions. So, speaking of affections, the greatest affection of all is love. Agree? It is. It can move mountains, right? I mean, it, it fights wars. It's what gets people out of bed in the morning. It, it does pretty much everything. It's what keeps us on the narrow way. It's our great attraction to the Lord. It's everything. True love is the pearl. God is love. The fulfillment of the law is the law of love. If you love, you'll fulfill the law. It's the great Supreme, if you would, emotion of all, affection. The greatest affection of all is love. True love is what sets our direction. True love is what sets our direction. You can fake it for a little while, but let's face it. If your heart's not in it, you're not going to continue. Is that fair? Yeah. The only thing that's going to make you go up that damn mountain is love. Because people are shooting at you. And they're threats. It's like Paul said, I die daily. Who the hell wants to run into fire? <laughs> Seriously. Who wants to do that? You do, because you know that's for Christ. You'll do it, because you love Him. That's the difference between you, as a believer, and an unbeliever. Some joker, who's in church right now, playing a game. Wearing the uniform, you know how it is. The, you know, the conscientious objector, the ones who end up bailing out when it's time for war. You know, those putzes. There's a lot of those people out there playing a game, wearing a uniform, call themselves Christians. They're nothing but a bunch of phonies. Why? Because they have no real affection for Christ. All their affection is for themselves. 
Look behind the curtain in them. You know what's there? Nothing. Dead men's bones. Depravity. So how does that work? Because even Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. Even a totally depraved person can counterfeit, look the part. Love, true love. We love because he first loved us, right? True love, that love, is what sets our direction. The analog here, of course, and just just to drive the point home, the analog, for the sake of illustration, is love between humans even. That when we have a certain love for another person, we are typically directed towards showing affection to them. Or if we have affection, we tend to go in the direction of them. Right? It's why two people become one flesh. It's why two people get married in many ways, right? You're attracted to one another. I'll give you pink again. This is from Thursday to help drive this home. Love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. Obedience is nothing more than walking the way He wants you to walk. Walk by means of the Spirit. Walk this way. My sheep follow me. Did you get it? It's love. It's love. Otherwise, it's a game. You can be walking like Judas. <laughs> walking the same path Jesus walked and still be unsaved. Why? Because you don't have any real love for Him. That's the key distinction that sin does not want you to understand. Sin wants to deceive you from all of that. doesn't want you to have this conversation in your soul. Love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. Quote, if a man love me, he will keep my words. That's the proof in the pudding. Jesus said that, John 14, 23. Love is the very life and substance of everything which is gratifying to God. Hmm. As the principle of obedience, love takes the precedence, for faith works by love. Galatians 5, 6. Note the order in the injunction. Quote, let us consider one another to provoke one unto love and two to good works. In other words, love precedes good works. It's love that animates good works. Hebrews 10.24 Stir up the affections and good works will follow. As a stirring up of the coals caused the flames to rise. And then finally he says, It is love which makes all the divine commandments Quote, not grievous. In other words, you want to do these things. So you're tired. I wrote a blog on that, right? Go around. Don't walk on the thin ice. Go around the pond. Don't go through the treacherous place. So you have to go a little longer. So you have to drive to church when you're not feeling all that well. I'm sick right now. I was up all night coughing up phlegm, not to be gross. I'm tired. I'm beat. Do you know what I'm getting at? I'm not saying I'm great. I'm just saying that's the example. Imitate my faith. So says Holy Scripture. That's how it's not grievous. It's because of love. Of course I'm going to get up and do this thing. It is love which makes all the divine commandments not grievous. 1 John 5, 3. 
We heartily agree with Charnock, this is from his book, obviously, and that one word, love, God hath wrapped up all the devotion he requires of us. That's all he wants. You know God's a jealous God, right? Why? Because he wants your love. He knows if he has your love, you ready? This is how simple it is. He knows if he has your love, he has your affection. And he knows if he has your affection, truth be known, you're going to walk towards his son. You're going to walk right with his son. What do I do here? Whoop, I'm going to go that way. I'm going to love you. Isn't that what you do? When you're in love? Huh? Mm. Remember when you were a little puppy dog in like, you know, grade school and you have your first crush and you're like, mm. what do you do? You follow the poor girl around the, the playground. She's like, get away from me. Or the boy. It's usually the other way around because boys are like mature, slower. So it's usually the girls like, you know, all of a sudden you're like, what are they doing? You know, and then they're like, you know. It's what we do. When we have love and affection for someone, we go with them. We go with them. Concentrate. To borrow from Pink, quote, love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. I'm almost out of time here. I'll put this in there. But behind this theological truth, Love that is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. In other words, the great motivator is love. It's what sets our affections, and it's what sets our direction then. Behind this theological truth is the structure and existence of sovereignty even. This is a theological truth. We obey our sovereigns, particularly when we have love for them. The great sovereign in our lives, some of you like, but I don't like, you know, the president. I don't like my boss, and I don't like so-and-so, so I don't really want... No, but you follow them, you obey them, like Scripture says, I think it's Romans 5, obey, leave it, even the government people, um, because your sovereign said to do so, the one who's above everyone, the one who delegates all authority, the source of all authority. You love him. And if he says, follow this knucklehead, then what do you do? You follow this knucklehead. Some of you wives are going, yep. <laughs> Lois is laughing and Bill's not even here anymore. I don't know what that means, Lois. I don't think it's fair. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, follow this knucklehead because I said to. I don't know. Most women I know in America fail that brutally. Brutally. Even so-called Christian women. Brutally fail. Why? I don't know. Maybe they don't love the Lord. Maybe. Maybe they don't love the Lord enough. I don't know. Because I know that if you love them enough, you would do exactly what he said. We obey our sovereigns particularly when we have a love for them. When our affections are aligned with pleasing them. Fair enough. If we agree with pink, Quote, love is that which animates the obedience which is agreeable to God. Then we must further conclude the following up here on the board. How sin usurps sovereignty. You see how this happens? Do you understand what goes on? See how theologically we came from over here, right? We end up with love. And now we're going this way out to sovereignty. I'm just thinking of the whole mental map of, you know, doctrine, biblical doctrines. You see how this is all connected though, right? If your relationship with God is sour, if you don't have that one thing, love, then they're all interconnected. 
how sin usurps authority. For sin to be most effective, it must grab hold of our affections. If it has our affections, it has our attention, our direction, our, quote, love even. I have that in quotes because it's a perverted love at this point. We trade it in for love of Christ. We trade it in, and all of a sudden something becomes attractive to us. We, you know, you know how that goes. You see something, you know it's not necessarily good, but you kind of you have a crush on it. You're crushing on it, right? You kind of fall in love with it. You have this like spike of, I, I want that. Right? Do you know what I'm getting at? Or I want him, or I want her, or I want whatever that thing is. I want this, I want this situation. You convince yourself you actually need it. You pray to God for it in error, and the Holy Spirit's groaning to the nines. Right? You're doing all these things to try to get this thing that you're so in love with. But it's actually not godly love. It's sin deceiving you. Because in that moment, you've had to drop the hand of Christ. Remember, Scripture says you cannot serve two masters. So if your affections and your direction starts waning, your vector, and I'm sorry about all the physics this morning, but it's, it's a good visual, your vector starts moving towards ungodliness. He says you can't have both. You're going to love one and despise the other, or vice versa. You can't have both. You can't serve two masters. You see how mastership and love are connected? Yeah. For sin to be most effective, it must grab hold of our affections. If it has our affections, it has our attention, our direction, our love even though it's not godly love, with our, quote, love comes our obedience, which essentially describes a sovereign master-slave relationship. Yeah, that's how it works. That's how it works. How can I get Satan right now, the king, and I'm going to close, the kingdom of darkness right now is working overtime for your affection. Is working overtime for your affection. Wants you to grope in the dark. Wants you to be dimmer. Wants you to not be able to distinguish maybe your true husband from some other seducer. Wants things to get a little darker. Right? You want that to happen? One of the, like I just mentioned earlier, leave the church. Go, go, go play games somewhere else. Or don't even submit to anybody or stop that whole ridiculousness. Do that thing. And all of a sudden the lights start getting dimmer. Satan's like, good, now Satan's doing this number. Oh yeah, it's getting dark in here. And what can you do in the dark? Right? What are you doing? I don't say go do this at home, but it's probably a good experiment. Go home, shut all the lights off, get in a room with like 20 people, try to distinguish who they are by touching their faces. You're going to get fooled once in a while. Right? That's how darkness works. You can get fooled in the dark. Satan, sin itself, wants that situation in your life. 
wants to dim the lights down. Get your affection. Get you to fall in love with someone who isn't or something that isn't Christ. Get you to turn your affections. Oh, yeah, in the dark. I can't see very well. But, hey, you seem pretty, you know, you're kind of handsome. I kind of like you. I kind of like this little thing. And sin's like, yeah, turn the lights on a little bit more. Take another step. Stop. You don't have to read your Bible every day. Those blogs, they're okay. You don't have to read them. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to listen to the bald guy. What's he know? He admits he's a wreck. I'm not a wreck, by the way. You know what I'm saying, right? He admits these things. Why would I listen to him? Why would I mimic him? Lights are going down. You know what a rheostat is? Variable light. It's just like that. Turn it down. Turn it down. Turn it down. Darker it gets, the easier it is for you to be uh, fooled. Next thing you know, magnet comes, 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 and you move. And at that point, you have overt sin. But then sometimes it's bad, right? Sometimes you're like, oh, crap. This is a bad one, too. It's like I try to raise my kids like that. Hey, listen, guys, there's certain sins you just don't want to do. Like driving drunk. Don't drive drunk. Don't even get in a car with liquor in your system. Because God forbid you hurt somebody. Then you're going to live with that for the rest of your life. Is a stupid ass, stupid bum beer or a drink. No, for real. Is that worth it? Jim, we could have like a counseling session. Jim says yes. He gets excited, presumably. Is that worth it? No, come on, man. There's certain things you just don't do. I'm digressing. But you know what I'm saying? It gets dark. The next thing you know, we make bad decisions. And then, oh, well, we can all agree that drunk driving and running somebody over, that's a bad sin, should be on that list. The Spirit's saying, oh, no, I want to know how you got there. Let's look behind the curtain. How did you even end up in that situation in shackles on the hood of a police car? How did you end up there in the first place? Where are your affections? Who's your love for? Why would you ever do that? That's the deceitfulness of sin. God says obey the laws of the land. Why didn't you obey the law? Where's your obedience? You know, that you, you know you're breaking the law. You're breaking the law of love. Where's your love for me? I love that person you just ran over. I created them special, wonderfully made, and you ended their life. Where's your love? What the hell is wrong with you? That's the kind of, that's the, and I know that's an extreme example, but they're all little versions of it, right? Scaled down versions of places we can get to, places that are completely avoidable, places we'd never really want to get to if we just examine behind the curtain. How are we being deceived? Is there a reason? Is there a certain pain in you that makes you do that stuff? To self-medicate or whatever it is you're doing? I'm just hopping on this one example. Is there a reason? What's the reason? Because in love for Christ, that reason doesn't exist. Something's missing in you. And it has everything to do with love. Your love has been misguided, misappropriated. That's the discussion we want to have. I don't want to have a discussion. Yes, it's wrong to do these things. Yes, I get it, I get it. Can we get beyond milk? Can we get to meat? 
Can I feed you real meat now? Can we talk about the real game? Where, where sin really operates? Where sin really does its damage? It's behind the curtain. Why are these things continuing in your life? Why do you have these affections for someone or something other than Jesus Christ? And why do you always give them the opportunity to fracture your precious, beloved relationship with the only one that truly loves you? Why does that happen? That's the discussion. That's where the deceitfulness of sin comes in. I hope you get it, because we're out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to study your word, to just absorb the truth, Father, for we know that truth sets us free. We know that sometimes it's difficult, but we know that you love us. We know that you're just trying to keep our attention. We love us. We love you, Father. We just want to be there and walk in the direction and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. Father, thank you for the privilege of doing so, and thank you for your patience and your mercy and your grace and your love all along the way. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.